welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 4, a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. In our last episode, our reluctant hero, Gideon, had triumph over a vastly larger number of Midianites and their force with his 300 men, pared down from over 20,000. Something else we'd like to notice with you before we move on from this is how this great battle was won. You'll recall there were torches and trumpets and broken pots. If you've forgotten, you really ought to listen to last week's episode first. You can boil it all down to tricky subterfuge, but there's more to this victory than strategy. And if it was all about strategy, that strategy came from me. The big lesson here is similar to the one we brought away from Jericho. Israel didn't win the day because they had a greater army than the enemy. No, they won because they believed and obeyed a greater God. Again, what they did was counterintuitive to the task at hand. The counterintuition started when I sent 22,000 men home in the first cut. The small and insignificant force of jarbreakers and hornblowers delivered their nation that day because I was at work in the total circumstance, from choosing a fearless few in Israel to fostering fear in all the enemy's hearts. How does that transfer to your life, friend? Am I asking you to start breaking jars, blowing trumpets, and hollering things about me around your office when you feel like you're being oppressed? Only if you're tired of your job and want to be fired immediately. In the case of a tough job, or difficulty getting ahead in one way or another in your habitat, the important thing is to stick with me on the way, friend, regardless of how counterintuitive my way may seem in your habitat. Walk with integrity instead of taking moral shortcuts to get ahead. Affirm your co-workers and their strengths instead of tearing them down behind their backs in order to make yourself look better. Set aside time to worship me even if that feels like the only time you can do whatever it is you think has to get done at home and work. Once again, the bottom line is this. Trust in me and what I say is the way to go about life, and your life will be exponentially better and probably much longer than if you spend your life going after what your habitat values. Gideon has a mixed finish to his chapter in our story. On the good side, when Israel tries to make him king and his line after him, because of his slash our victory, Gideon declines and tells them, I'm not going to be your king. Yahweh already is. We're in Judges 8.22 right now. In the same breath, though, he asked the people for some gold, which, of course, they give him. They'd have given him anything at that point. Gideon then proceeds to make a golden idol, not of Baal or some other god, but of an ephod. Now, an ephod is something I instructed to be included in the fancy garments of the high priest. We didn't go into detail back then, but that ephod also included a couple things called the urim and the thummin, also known as the sacred lots the priest would ritually cast to get my answers to his questions, on rare occasions. 
Think asking me for my answer to a yes or no question and then flipping a coin to see what I say. Totally oversimplified, but you get the point. Very rare and to be done only by the high priest, but Gideon has taken it to another very sinful level, to the level of being an idol all by itself. This final episode of Gideon clearly stems from his weakness. Let's call that weakness his need to know more than he needs to know as betrayed in his penchant for signs. I'm all for making informed decisions, let me tell you. I'm going to recommend getting lots of counsel when there's enough time to sit down and write some Proverbs for you all, oh, like Proverbs 15.22, for example. However, knowledge can become an idol, too especially if you agree with Francis Bacon and his thought that knowledge is power. Like most things, it's a matter of heart. You can seek out knowledge for all kinds of reasons, to learn more about me even, or to better equip yourself to be of service to others. However, amassing knowledge is also a way to feel like you're in control of a situation, or to feel superior to the people around you who know less than you. The ephod idol Gideon has constructed is pointed at knowledge even more insidious than that sought in order to control and dominate. This idol falls squarely in the fortune-telling category. It's still kind of pointed at me, but it's a bit like a permanent installation of the fleece test from earlier. Only now, there's none of the please-don't-be-angry-with-me anymore. It's got an on-demand aspect to it, and ultimately displays a lack of faith in me. It's a golden idol from start to finish. So the people put their trust in this thing instead of me, and although there's peace for the remainder of Gideon's life, it's no surprise that the downward spiral kicks in immediately upon his demise, and Israel moves on from the ephod to full worship of the neighbor's Baals in quick order. And yet again, as the cycle's been established, like a good parent who still hopes for his kids to learn, I let my children feel the consequences of their playing with fire, and they cry out to me for help. When I tell them to get help from the other gods they've been worshipping, they repent and say I'm the only god for them, and they turn back to me. Of course, I relent, raising up another human leader. The whole cycle is condensed to a one-paragraph nutshell in Judges 10, verses 10 through 16. It plays over and over in the whole book, whether we're talking about the book of Judges or the owner's manual in general. Six more judges come and go in this cyclical manner after Gideon, and the seventh judge after him is the one most of you have been waiting for, at least those who knew a book of Judges exists. Samson has finally arrived. Only he hasn't. His story starts with a chat I have with his mom, who up to this point is childless, unable to give birth, not unlike a couple others who are playing important roles in the plan. Now we're shifting to Judges 13 now. Now, if you want to really get the context for my call to Samson, take a minute to bounce back to number 6 and read that chapter. It'll give you the full rundown on what it takes to place yourself in the special set-aside-for-Yahweh category known as Nazarite. Not surprisingly, Nazarite just means someone who's separated. 
I tell Samson's mom that she's about to conceive a son and to make sure he's set apart from me with the conditions in numbers from his conception. I want her to adhere to Nazarite conditions too so that Samson is pure from cell one. No wine or strong drink. Nothing unclean. She won't be cutting her own hair, but I also tell her to make sure he doesn't cut his either. All these things are prescribed in number six. Now, in that passage, this is something a man or woman would do for a specific time period centered usually on a certain issue. Well, the certain issue I'm setting Samson aside for is the issue of the Philistines, saving the best for last, you might say. Samson is going to begin their downfall, I say right up front at the very beginning of his tale. You can already guess that a decent number of Philistines is going to still be around for the slingshot king to handle in a while, but first things first. We've got to get the Philistines on Israel's radar and vice versa if we're ever going to get the promised land's borders all the way out to where we promised they'd finally get. The Philistines have in fact not been on Israel's radar because in their cyclical waves of faithfulness, my children have largely been focused on the nations to the east. It just so happens that those nations' peoples are the ones named with the suffix of ites. Moabites, Midianites, Amalekites, Ammonites, all the other ites. Philistines have not been saved for last because of this linguistic distinction, but rather because of their location to the west of Israel's positions held by the tribes of Dan, Judah, and Simeon to this point. Philistia lies along the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea, and thus directly west of Israel. Philistia is the only nation preventing southern Israel from having its own ports, making it both highly desirable and highly defended territory. Just as the northern neighbors had been exerting influence and control over the northern portion of Israel, so have the Philistines been dominating southern Israel for some time now. And so, after an unremarkable childhood characterized by my protection and blessing, uh, remarkable in their own right, of course, Samson emerges into adulthood with a special measure of spirit, which heads him straight west to pick a fight with the Philistines, uh, Judges 14 now. Well, first he picks a wife. That's when the fights really start. Because of this particular mission, Samson, never mind the whole don't marry other nations command or the extra supreme Nazarite set aside for Yahweh bit, get over there and fall in love with the Philistina. No, again, she's not the one you're thinking of. This poor gal goes nameless in the account. All you get to know is that she's easy on Samson's eyes and he insists on marrying her. So Samson and his folks head west together to make wedding arrangements. As they get near the gal's hometown of Timnah, a hungry young lion jumps out at Samson, thinking a lone walker would make a handy lunch. Uh, Samson's folks are on the older side, again a case of an older, barren woman giving birth to a child of promise. And they're taking their time, lagging behind enough to miss the circus of fun. This is when you find out I've given Samson supernatural strength, because he not only stops and kills the lion, he tears it apart into pieces with his bare hands, 
and separates it like so much fried chicken. You've seen enough superhero movies to know that Samson hides the lion carcass and doesn't tell anyone about the whole sequence, not even his folks. Okay, think Spider-Man, not Superman. And no S on Samson's tunic, either. They all make it to Timna without further incident and set the wedding date for a couple weeks later. The Samsons, actually, his dad's name is Manoa, and this is a pre-surname habitat. If they had a last name, it'd have been a derivative of Dan, their tribe. Well, they head back home to their village, Mahanedan, a cozy community in, where else, the territory of Dan. They're there just long enough to pack for the honeymoon and forward Samson's mail to Philistia. They are back on the road to Timna for the wedding before you can say, Manoah's your uncle. Over the intervening days, Samson has begun to wonder if he'd just dreamed the whole lion attack episode, so when they get to the same spot, with him in the far lead again, he looks in the brush to see if there are, in fact, lion parts where he thought he'd thrown them. Sure enough, there they are, with an added bonus. Some scout bees have thought the chest cavity of the lion corpse a well-protected location, and a bee colony has made quick work of building a hive in there. Never one to miss the chance to satisfy an appetite or two, Samson grabs a mitt full of honeycomb and trots off with his spoils, even giving some to his parents as they saunter along. If you took the time to check out number six back there for Nazarite requirements, right up there in the list of abstaining from any activity or food that would render the person ceremonially unclean was the command to keep your hands off a corpse of any kind, including that of the dead and decomposing lion you tore apart with your bare hands. So on his way to his wedding ceremony, not only is Samson unclean from his wacky and frankly pretty gross excavation of the lion carcass beehive, he spreads the contagion of his uncleanness to his parents when he passes the honey on to them. He doesn't tell them where he gets it from. They just think it's a little gamey. This unsettling sequence will have more to do with Samson's story than it ought, but we'll wait until next time to discuss that on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. We've got a lot of wonderful ground to cover in future episodes. If you'd like to support what we do, share this with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. And feel free to give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. 15 Minutes on the Way is sponsored by the Oakhaven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Alexander Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website art, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.